morning, everybody. Our reading this morning is from John chapter 21. We're starting to read at verse 15. <clears throat> so the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and we're starting at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Can I just start with a quick thank you? Thank you for all your friendship. Thank you for just the lovely way you've uh, welcomed Pip and me back into your presence again. And thank you for the way that you've sung and prayed and listened to the Bible taught. That's been a huge blessing to me. Well, I need God's help, so can we pray? Father God, thank you for all that's been good about this weekend. Thank you for the family, the fun, the food, the fellowship. Thank you especially for the Father who has made his presence felt among us through his Son and by his Spirit. We do love you, Father God. We delight to be your children. Please help us, we pray, eagerly to gather around our Father's knee now to hear what you would say to us about the Lord Jesus, the Son whom you love. Hear us and help us, please, for his name's sake we ask. Amen. What um, images spring to mind when you picture an evangelist? Maybe we think of a kind of restless a adrenaline junkie who, who could sell ice to the Eskimos. Or maybe we think of an American televangelist who's sporting a sharp suit and a cheesy grin. I've always sought to model myself after such. <laughs> Yet if we think about the people who led us to the Lord Jesus, 
we're probably thinking about people with very different qualities. For Simon, it all begins with that encounter in the boat we thought about yesterday, when the Lord Jesus calls him to give up catching fish to begin catching people. I think initially Simon Peter might well fit into the adrenaline junkie mold. All action, always got something to say, always up for anything. We reach the kind of height of his self-assurance in the upper room the night before Jesus dies. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will, he says. A picture of self-confidence. Yet the Lord Jesus knows that this very self-confidence will be his undoing. The man proclaiming his lifelong fidelity to Jesus will very soon deny him three times. Bold Peter will be exposed as an evangelistic failure. Broken Peter will show us the way forward. And that brings us to John 21, one of the most poignant passages in Scripture. In a way, it's surprising that this incident forms the climax of John's gospel. You might have thought he'd finish his gospel with a flourish, with Thomas's magnificent confession, my Lord and my God. And some folk have argued that John's gospel does in fact end in chapter 20, and that our passage is a kind of addendum, an idea for which there is not one shred of textual evidence, by the way. But the truth is, the gospel story does not end with the resurrection. It ends with the sending down of the Spirit and the sending out of Jesus' disciples to continue his work. That's anticipated in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. And here it's true as it's anticipated for us in John's gospel. Jesus will not appear anymore to the doubting Thomases of this world. He's given them all the evidence they need. No, he appears to failed Simon Peters. And as a serial failure myself, I am eternally grateful. This closing scene is a set-up job from start to finish. You've heard that before. The, the incident with the fish takes us right back to where it all began. Do you remember back in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 5 yesterday morning, Jesus has been in Peter's boat preaching to the crowd. And when the meeting's over, he says to Peter, put out into a deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And we reflected on what Peter might have said. Excuse me, we're the professionals around here. Every fisherman knows you don't go fishing at this time of day. And if I might say so, you're rather good at preaching. Maybe you should stick to that and leave the fishing to the experts. At which Jesus might have said something like, sorry Peter, which bit of the sentence, let down your nets for a catch, didn't you understand? That wasn't a suggestion, Peter, it was a command. And Peter says, Master, because you say so, I will let down the nets. And by the time they drag the catch aboard, both boats are in danger of sinking. And that's when Peter falls at Jesus' knees and says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, from now on, Peter, you won't be catching fish. You'll be catching men and women for me. Well, here's Peter fishing once again. What do you do when you've failed a friend spectacularly? You've cried until you're numb. 
You've replayed your failure over and over in your mind. You've called yourself every name you can think of. What do you do then? You find something to block the pain. We don't know Peter's motive for going back fishing. He's a natural activist. Maybe he's bored and just filling in time before Jesus shows up. Or maybe, just maybe, he's saying something else, something deeper, something much more disturbing. Guys, I'm going back. I'm going back to my old way of life. The Christian adventure was great while it lasted, but for me, it's over. It's not that I'm finished with Jesus. I'll never be finished with him. But I'm sure he's finished with me. I had my chance, and I blew it. Well, once again, the sea has not been very sympathetic, and it's been a very unsuccessful night. Verse 3, that night they caught nothing. Has Peter lost the knack, we wonder? Once he'd been so sure, sure of everything. Now he's not even sure he can fish anymore. Well, his early morning musings are interrupted by a voice ringing across the water. That there's a figure standing by the shore. Friends, haven't you any fish? The voice sounds faintly familiar, although the question seems oddly tactless. Friends, haven't you caught any fish? But the embarrassing truth is, no, Peter and his new form fishing company have not caught a single thing all night. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find some, shouts the voice from the shore. Again, this sounds a little bit like a backseat driver telling the driver instructor what to do. Peter looks at the rising sun over the distant hills. It's far too late in the day. He looks at the water on the side of the boat. It's like a mill pond. What is the point? And yet as they do what Jesus says, the water begins to churn again. Fish start appearing out of nowhere. Lots and lots of fish. So many fish that they can hardly get them all aboard. It's happening all over again. John's usually quickest off the mark, and, and this is a moment of revelation for him. He realizes we've been here before. It's the Lord, he says. The Lord? Peter's pulse begins to race. Now, Peter may be slower to see things, but he's quicker to act on them. He wraps his outer coat around him, jumps into the water, and swims the 100 metres world record for a man wearing an overcoat. <laughs> I don't know what it is with Peter. He can't seem to stay in a boat these days. And yet I know exactly what it is with Peter. It's the same as last time he got out of the boat, when it was far from shore. It's Jesus. Now, will you just stop and think about the irony of this for a moment? Back in Luke chapter 5, Peter falls at Jesus' feet and implores him, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. This time, the sinful man races towards the one he has just betrayed so horribly. Now, how do you make any sense out of that? You make sense out of that as Peter realizes there is sweet forgiveness. That's the phrase we've been singing, isn't it? There is sweet forgiveness in this gentle, lowly master. What should you do when you failed a friend horribly? You should go to them. 
And this time Peter's sins don't drive him away. They draw him near. He can't help himself. And as he stumbles out of the water, he falls into the arms of Jesus. It's always moving, going back to the place of memories. The place where we dreamed the dreams of youth, perhaps. The place where we proposed to a loved one, maybe. The place where we laid a loved one to rest. On our 25th wedding anniversary, I took Pippa back for a meal to the hotel where we'd enjoyed our honeymoon. You're supposed to say, thank you. It was a memorable evening. The thing I remember is that the meal for two cost more than the whole honeymoon. <laughs> I, I guess that's the trouble when you're an inveterate romantic. And Jesus knows that this incident is going to be full of memories for Peter. It's going to bring back thoughts too deep for tears. When the disciples empty their nets, they count the catch. It adds up to 153 fish. Now, cleverer brains than mine have suggested that the number 153 represents the totality of the nations coming to be drawn into the new creation. Well, I don't know about that. It's a lovely thought. I'm just content to see that this is an eyewitness account. The John who's telling us uh, that there's 120, 153 fishes telling us because he's there. And over breakfast, they talk and they laugh and they reminisce and they enjoy the fun, food, fellowship and family. It's just like old times. So different from the last time they'd eaten together in the upper room. Well, if breakfast on the beach marks scene one, in this reconstruction. Scene two describes a walk on the wild side. Jesus is very tender. He knows right now that as they walk, Peter's reliving the horror of that fateful night. Peter, remember, was warming his hands by a charcoal fire then, in the high priest's courtyard when Jesus was on trial. And Peter has just been warming his hands again by a charcoal fire, only this time in the high priest's presence. What Jesus goes on to say is remarkable. But what he doesn't say is even more remarkable. There's no hint of, I'm really disappointed in you, you know. You really let me down. You're all talk, and you call yourself my friend. I made a big mistake when I put my trust in you. There's absolutely no hint of that. Instead, Jesus asks a simple question. On that fateful night, Peter was asked a question three times. Do you know him? And now three times, Jesus asks an even more pointed question. Not, do you know me? Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, notice again, it's not Jesus' preferred name, Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, as we look at this passage uh, for a few minutes this morning, we're going to find a question that gets asked three times, a confession that gets made three times, and a commission that gets extended three times. A threefold question. Simon, do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? There's been all kinds of speculation about the, what the more than these means. Does it mean the boats and the fishing? Do you love me more than this career you seem to have gone back to, Peter? Do you love me more than that? I wonder if it's more likely that Jesus is gesturing at the disciples, still sitting around the fire. Peter, do you love me more than them? See, that's what you told me, remember? These guys, they're going to deny you. You can't trust them, but I'll never let you down. I'll die for you. Simon, do you really love me more than them? Because you didn't. Three times, you didn't. It's a deceptively simple question, isn't it? It's the most searching question you'll ever be asked. Simon, do you love me? Come on. God bless. Lovely to see you. I love it when people walk out of my talks. <laughs> God bless. Lovely to see you. Can we all stop for a quick bye-bye? Bye. <laughs> Fabulous. It's kind of an anti-appeal. <laughs> people walk to the back and out. Simon, do you love me? It's a question that cuts Peter to the core. I was struggling to just imagine, what would happen if Pip said to me, do you know, do you love me? I would be so hurt. But that's the point of Christianity. Do you know Christianity is not a philosophy, it's a person. Christianity is not a formula, it's a friendship. Christianity is not a, a metaphysic, it's a master passion. Jesus doesn't say, have you read Gentle and Lowly? He doesn't say, have you had a quiet time today? He doesn't say, do you tithe? He doesn't say, when was the last time you told someone about me? They're all good questions, but the ultimate question is this. Do you love me? It is such a... Simple question, but such a probing one because it plums the very depth of our being. Do you love me? It removes the mask from my face. It removes any hint of plastic piety of which I might be guilty. Love for Jesus, that is the ultimate sign of discipleship. Do you know it's quite easy to work out if you love somebody? Think about a compass needle. In the hurly-burly of life, the, the compass needle spins this way and that. But as soon as the compass settles, the needle will make its way back to polar north. If you love someone, you can be distracted by 101 things. But as soon as you get the chance, as soon as there is the space, your mind will be drawn back to them. You'll think about them. You'll want to be with them. You will want to talk to them. You will want to hear them. I'm sure there's a sense in which Peter wants to get this conversation over with. But Jesus knows it cannot be hurried. And so he asked the question a third time, Simon, I want you to answer me from your heart. Do you love me? Do you think about me? Do you want to spend time with me? Do you want me? to talk to you. I know there are some people who kind of get a bit put off by this loving Jesus kind of language, it's kind of especially us guys, and I suppose it can get a bit sloppy and sentimental. But it does lie at the heart of everything. G.K. Chesterton used to say, let your Christianity be less of a theory and more of a love affair. 
I think about how passionate the, the fans are about their football team, Manchester United and Barcelona and Liverpool and Chelsea. And I get really excited every time I meet the other Ipswich Town fan. <laughs> we sing and we cheer, we wave our scarves and our banners. We're full on. What would it look like for me to be full on for Jesus? When am I ever excited about him? Well, there really have been hints and glimpses of that this weekend, haven't there? Simon, do you love me? A threefold question. And then there's a threefold confession. Three times the question comes and three times Peter struggles to answer. Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And some commentators have made a lot of the fact that Jesus and Peter use two different words for love. Do you love me? Yes, you know I'm your friend. No, do you love me? Yes, I know you know I'm your friend. Are you really my friend? Yes, I'm, you know I am your friend. And that's true. But in practice, the Greek words seem to be fairly interchangeable, so I don't read too much into that. C.H. Spurgeon wasn't just a great preacher. He was a skillful pastor. And one day a lady came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I don't think I have any faith left. So Spurgeon got out a piece of paper, wrote some words. I do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he passed it across the table to her and said, there you are, sign it. And she took a look at that and said, I'm not signing that. I'd be, it's not true. I'd rather be torn to pieces than sign that. And without him saying another word, in that moment she realized that deep down, whatever struggle she might be going through just now, she really did love the Lord Jesus. Scottish theologian and preacher James Denny wrote a famous book about the cross of Christ. He said this, The one thing that makes me the kind of Christian I am is that I dare not turn my back on Christ and put him out of my life. So as Jesus very gently peels back the scab of Peter's huge failure, there is no bluster left, just grief and pain. What else can Peter say? Where else can he turn? He can only appeal to the tender heart of Jesus. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Lord, if it's down to my actions and my words and my boastful claims, you know that I'm going to let you down again. But Lord, you know deep down in my heart I do love you. I can't point to very much, but I fling myself on your kind and understanding heart. I love the words from William Cooper's old hymn. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. So, a threefold question followed by a threefold confession, followed by a threefold commission. The question is the same each time do you love me? The, uh, the confession is the same each time. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. But the threefold commission isn't quite like that. Jesus calls Peter to three distinct things. First, he calls him to service. Each time Peter says, I love you, Jesus says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. 
Do you see it? If we, if we love the Lord Jesus, we are bound to love the Lord Jesus' people. And we'll express that love by caring for them. We've been doing that this weekend. I've loved watching the way that you've just been serving each other and enjoying being with each other this weekend. Notice that they're my lambs, my sheep. They're unspeakably precious to him. And if they're unspeakably precious to him, they must be precious to us. You remember when Saul of Tarsus was on the warpath and setting out to wreak havoc among the churches of the north and the Lord Jesus meets him on the Damascus road and reveals himself to him. He says this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And we might scratch our heads and say, well, Saul's not actually persecuting you, Lord Jesus. He's persecuting your people. But that's Jesus' point. To persecute them is to persecute him. And here he turns that thought around. To love him is to love his people, to feed them, to care for them. And I guess I despair sometimes as I've had the privilege of travelling the country to see congregations and home groups and small groups that aren't loved and cared for. What a blessing you are. Don't forget the context. Jesus is forgiving Peter and recommissioning him. He's demonstrating his grace after the most appalling denial. He's saying, Peter, you are still the right man for the job. The Australian missionary Rita Snowden has put it in rather daring terms like this. Failure is never final with God. You ask me what forgiveness means. It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. Can I say that again? Failure is never final with God. You ask me what forgiveness means. It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. And that's exactly what's happening to Simon Peter right here. He's mucked up big time and here he is being trusted again in the place of service. That's the wonder of sweet forgiveness. Failure doesn't have to be final. Simon, you want to serve me? Great, serve them. Which is exactly what Peter does. And if you want to see how good he is at doing it, just read his first and second letters. Now, there's a second calling, a commissioning to suffer and sacrifice. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. And when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. We've seen that Peter's early career is marked by boastful pride. But by the end of his life, he is a deeply changed man. Church historians tell us that Peter was crucified under Emperor Nero. We gather that when the guards came to execute him, Peter said, no, no, you can't crucify me. They crucified my Lord. Crucifixion is too good for me. His executioners took him at his word and crucified him upside down. Peter died a very, very violent and painful death. At least that's the tradition. 
And that's what Jesus is anticipating here. He's saying, look, I'm commissioning you, but, but this isn't just a call to service. It's a call to suffering and sacrifice as well. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls someone, he bids him come and die. And that's true for every believer, but especially for those of us who are called to any kind of gospel ministry or church leadership. There will be misunderstanding and there will be criticism. Can you imagine what his friends must have said to, the, to Saul of Tarsus when he told them he'd become a Christian? Saul, you can't be serious. Man, you've got the whole world at your feet. Can't you see that you could have the chair of, uh, of theology in Jerusalem any time? You could step into Gamaliel's shoes. You're throwing it all away, man. You must be mad. And you can almost feel the emotion in Paul's voice as he speaks to the Galatians. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has become crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. An elderly missionary was telling her inspiring story at a meeting. And a young man in the front row whispered to his friend slightly too loudly, I'd give everything for a testimony like that. Young man, the old woman remarked, everything is what it costs me. What Jesus says to Peter here is not just a call to service. It's a call to suffering and sacrifice. There's going to be a cost. And it isn't tucked away in the small print. Jesus is up front with us. And dare I say, I wonder if that cost is likely to get higher, particularly for you younger people. And then thirdly, there's a call to solitude. Simon Peter turns and looks over his shoulder, and he sees his best friend, John. Lord, he says, what about him? And Jesus says, in effect, I know John's very special to you. I know he's been your partner in business, and I know he's going to be your partner in ministry. But can I say this nicely? Mind your own business, Peter. Because just now, it's you I'm dealing with. Uh, I've got some plans for him. They don't involve you. You follow me. Now, I need to say this carefully because it kind of sounds like it's running counter to, to all the important things we believe about community and sharing and team ministry, which I wholeheartedly applaud. And we were reminded of that on our very first evening together. But there is something else going on here. Even in the best ministry team setting, even in the very, very closest Christian marriage, the Lord insists on dealing with each one of us intimately and individually. And sometimes that requires solitude. And that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter. I know John's your closest friend, but just for a moment you need to forget about him. We need to focus on you. Think how many of the, the big names of the Bible have to meet God alone. Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Daniel, the list goes on and on. And maybe the reason is because it's all too easy to engage with Christianity at a kind of cultural level. We love church. We love people. We love the Bible. We love the music. We love the activity. We love this weekend but somehow we never get to engage with the Lord Jesus himself. And maybe sometimes that's why the Lord Jesus needs to deal with us on our own. 
It has to be personal. So I want to say that there will always be an element of aloneness in following Jesus, especially again if we aspire to any kind of ministry or leadership role. We just need to recognize that it will be a lonely business sometimes. And the Lord Jesus doesn't want us to be caught out by that. Yes, there is a call to service. There is a call to suffering and sacrifice. But don't forget, there's also a call to solitude. You, follow me. Well, this is a truly wonderful chapter. Yes, Peter has mucked up big time. Yes, he's denied the Lord Jesus he loves, as I guess we all have in one way or another. And yet here he is, wonderfully restored and recommissioned. And Peter takes this interview right to heart. And we need to do the same. If you read his first letter, you'll find so many echoes of this walk along the beach. And I want to take you back to a verse I shared with you on Friday evening. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what Peter would want to say to us. Well, we had the chance to interview him. We ought to ask him to come out and say it for us. He'd say, let me tell you from my experience, I know you don't see him, but I'm so glad you love him. And even though you don't see him now, keep on believing in him. And he will do for you what no one else in all the world can do. He'll fill you with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This intimate moment proves to be the turning point for Peter. Within a couple of months now, he's going to preach the sermon of his life. In Jerusalem, the bastion of opposition to the Lord Jesus. And 3,000 people are going to get saved. 3,000 people who are going to form the nucleus of the church. So does the world need more evangelists? Well, that depends. Does the world need more Simon Peters? Well, that depends on which Simon Peter we're going to follow. Let's be fishers of men. But let's be pastoral fishermen. Let's be those whose ministry is not founded on gifting or big claims or resolve or religious righteousness. Let's minister based on brokenness over sin, on fleeing to the Lord Jesus for grace, on confessing our love for him and receiving his love for us. They're the evangelists the world needs.